So we see that God Himself says that there is nothing He cannot do. But at the same time, I want us to think on things to make sure we understand there are some things God doesn't do. Number one is sin. God does not sin. He cannot sin. Number one, His holy righteousness, He's holy and righteous, cannot sin. The Leviticus 11, chapter 11, verse 44, that's another affirmation from God. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and be ye holy, for I am holy. So we see that God is, is telling prophets throughout the Old Testament. Another one he spoke to Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. I want us to make sure we understand that our God has expectations for us that, and it's because really of His nature, His sinless nature, that He has expectations of us to walk in that likeness for Him, pure and holy. And you say, preacher, well, how on earth can I do that? Well, you only do that over time through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So, I, But I want us to make sure that, that when we, we walk through this real carefully this morning, we understand that when we deal with God, we are not to think that He's A, anything like us, and B, thinks anything like we think, because He is God. And we're not. Think about it. He is completely pure and holy. He's never allowed sin to ever, ever creep in His life. You know, that's hard. That's something you need to sit up at night and just think about. We live, we are fallen. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen people. We all have sinned. The Bible is plain. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all encompasses all. Just what it says. So we have, by nature, we are sinful by nature. Unlike God. God is not sinful. God is not unholy by nature. He is holy. Even the, even the prophet Habakkuk, right at the very end of the New Testament, if you want a quick read, it's only about three chapters, but it's a really good read. But right in the beginning, he says to, to God, he's crying out to God, all the evil around Habakkuk, and he says this, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and thou canst not look, on iniquity. That's Habakkuk 1.13. He says that God doesn't even want to look at sin because He is pure and He is holy. And really because, and this is where I want, to, I want us to make sure we get this, because God cannot sin, He also does not lie. He does not lie. Everything that's in God's Word is inspired by Him and, and, by, and breathed by Him into this book we call the Bible. And we need to make sure we understand that God doesn't sin, and He doesn't say a lie, and then we need to look into God's Word and see what it says, and know, one, that it's true, and it's not up for debate. People can say, we've said this before, I made mention of it Sunday, uh, Wednesday night. If you ever want to have a, 
a discussion on what's true, you have to understand. And, and I'll use Buddy again if you don't mind. If Buddy says the sky's blue and I say the sky's pink, all right, the thing is both of us can't be right because we have different seen opinions, right? We both can't be right. We both could be wrong, but we both can't be right. But the truth is the sky's blue. For all those who are not colorblind, it's blue. So that's the way we need to make sure we look at truth and when people tend to try to engage us and tell us that this is just an old wise tale, that it's truly not true, then you need to stop and say, well, what is truth? We need to find out what is true. And what you'll find most times is people have this, what's called an objectable truth. I have an, I have an objectable truth. My truth is the way I think about it, and I object to anything you say about it. That's sort of what they have nowadays. It's sort of an objectable truth. They want to be object about anything except what they think. But the thing about the Bible is, we have to make sure we understand God's character. He cannot sin. Therefore, He cannot tell a lie. Therefore, the Bible is true. It all goes hand in hand. But there are seven things that, that even in the, in the Proverbs that God says that is an abner, uh, abomination to Him and He says He even hates it. So there's seven things in Proverbs. This is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. The writer says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And he lists seven things. One is a proud look. Two is a lying tongue. Three is hands that shed innocent blood. Four is a heart that deceives wicked, deviseth wicked imaginations. Five is the feet that are swift to run to mischief. And six is a false witness that speaks lies. And seven is he that soweth discord among brethren. So right there, there are seven things recorded for us in the Bible that God is an abomination before God, i.e. God hates that. If you notice, this passage, lying was actually talked about twice. It just flat out said lying tongue, and then it said the heart of a false witness, someone that speaks lies. You know, the thing about representing something in, in nowadays is it seems to be who can talk the most, not necessarily whether they're right or wrong. They just tend to talk the most. That's who people believe, and that still doesn't make it true, right? It doesn't make it true. So, so the question begs ourselves from what the writer of Proverbs tells us, can God himself lie? And the answer is no, he hates lying. He hates lying. So God does not lie. God is pure. God is holy. Does not have a lying tongue. There's no false statement ever come from His lips. And He deceit, his, no dissent is, de, dissent is found, deceit, I'll get it right in a minute. No deceit is found anywhere in His heart. Because if you read the Bible and you have a, a wayward spirit still within you, when you read the Bible, you tend to think God is a, is a troublemaker, a a uh, party crasher. You tend to think God in that sort of realm. If you have the wrong eye that you're looking through the Bible at, you tend to think of, of God as some kind of party pooper, if you will, just somebody that kills the party. But there is no deceit found in God whatsoever. You know, God's promises 
are something that we can depend on as well. We can depend on. No matter what the world tells us. The truth is, Jesus said it Himself in John 14. He says in this amazing verse, He says, I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except through Me. That's an exclusive statement. That is in the face of every religion in this world today apart from Christianity. Everybody else says, look, look to this one, look to my Dharma, look to whatever the different religions are of the world. And Jesus stands up on the stage of human history and is recorded for us in John that He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Think about it. Jesus not only spoke the truth, He is truth. He is truth. Think about it. He cannot lie. So, since we serve a God that is pure and holy, He hates haughty eyes. You got anybody that thinks they're higher than anybody else? That's a haughty eye. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood a heart that deviseth wicked plans, and feet that run a marathon to do evil and spread discord instead of unity. So God is pure, God is holy, God is righteous, therefore God cannot lie. Also think about this, God cannot ignore sin either. He cannot ignore sin. You know, it bothers him so much, he, can't, he cannot just try to hide it in a closet or sweep it under a rug or just don't speak of it. Nobody will know. It won't spread. But God knows. The writer of Hebrew tells us in Hebrews 9, he says, It is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. Think about it. God cannot undo our sinful deeds. God cannot unsay our sinful words. God cannot unthink our sinful thoughts. God cannot ignore sin. God does not sweep it under the rug. God does not hide it in a closet. And God does not pretend that it wasn't there. You know, the truth of the matter is God looks us square in the face and He deals with it. If you've never been dealt with your sins, maybe your sins hadn't been forgiven. But think about what happened to Adam and Eve. If you want to do in your homework, just read Genesis chapter 3. It's an amazing book. Let me paraphrase a little bit of what's in it. It's in the Garden of Eden. They've eaten some fruit that they were told not to. And it's the, probably the next day. They have sewed some fig leaves around themselves to cover their nakedness. And then in walks God into the Garden of Eden. And He says, where are you? Around verse 9. A little bit later He says, who told you that you were naked? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go back and read the story. 
And then, he, then God asks them in about verse 11, He says, Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat from? God always confronts sin. He really doesn't ignore it. A lot of people like to think that God's a good old boy. He just winks at it. But think about what sin is in its, in its nature. Sin is like a cancer. It's in our lives and it just eats us alive. That's the way sin is. It can be a little sin. You know, the, I tell people all the time that the, the ground around the cross is flat. What I mean by that is it doesn't matter what you've done. You can be forgiven. But it also doesn't matter what you haven't confessed and been forgiven that will keep you out of heaven either. It's the scariest thing and it's the most blessed thing in the world at the ground, at the cross is level. There's no hierarchy of sin. Sin is sin. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. That's found in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. So sin must be dealt with in every person or it literally will kill your soul. And the rest of Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but, that's a really good but, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the saving part. That's the fix. If you are sick and dying, your sin is killing you, you can, but God you cannot do anything about that yourself, but God can hear you, and He can heal you. If you're lying on deathbed, but God steps in to cure you, I'm talking about spiritual deathbed. All of us literally have one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana spiritually before we met Christ. We're all but a train wreck before we met Christ and become saved. You know, Jesus told His disciples one time, He said, They that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick do. Jesus said that to the disciples talking to the Pharisees about the Pharisees. He said, It's, these who, it's just those who don't need a physician don't need me, but those that are sick need me. And we are by nature broken before God, and we need a, we need a healer. We have that in our repertoire of things today. So I want to ask you to think about this today. Are you sick? Are you sick? Are you sick and tired of sin in your life? Are you so sick and tired of trying to cover it up so people won't know, so my reputation won't be hurt, all that Sin and you're trying to do all the it, it takes a lot, especially if you lie. Just as a side note, I told somebody a long time ago, he was a habitual liar. I said, I won't say his name, I'll tell him Bo. I'll call him Bo. I say, Bo, one thing about a lie is you got to remember what you told that person because you're going to tell that one something else and that one something else. I'm not that smart. It might as well tell them the truth. It's a lot easier to remember. But think about it. Are you tired, sick and tired of trying to cover up? trying to 
justify yourself before a holy God and you just see yourself as sick, as sick, spiritually sick. God's not going to ignore your sin. The Bible is plain about that. God does not lie. The Bible is plain about that. But here's one great truth we want to end up with today. God cannot save apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Think about it. God's plan to save us has always been throughout all eternity, His Son Jesus. Before the worlds were flung into place, the plan was made for our salvation and is no part B. It's happened. It's completed. We've just went through Easter not long ago. It is complete. When Jesus says, it is finished, we, we hardly ever have the grip and the breath of what that actually meant. But it's all good news. Remember in, in John 16, Jesus declared that I am the truth. That is an exclusive statement. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So it's all about Jesus. The verse is very plain. There's no way to, to, to skirt that one way or the other. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. I don't care what any other religion says. If you want to know whether religion is even halfway right, ask them this one question. What do you do with Jesus? The Mormons think He's a prophet. Uh, a true Jew thinks He was a good man, a rabbi, but not Lord. Not Lord. There's a difference. God does not ignore sin, but Jesus is the answer. Remember the story about Adam and Eve when they fell. When they confronted them, He did something. God did something for them. Their, their fig leaves were not adequate to cover their sin. So God did something very special for them. He provided for them skins for clothes. He tells us that in verse 21 of Genesis 3. He says, Unto Adam also and unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. God did it correctly. And also emphatically, think about it. That was the first picture, if you will, of the sacrifice having to be made for sin. And it goes on from there. We see that it's impossible for animals to cover the, the, the sin of a man that even no matter how perfect the child or the, the goat is or the, or, the, or the lamb or whatever the animal is, it's never perfect enough to save sinful man then the man Jesus steps in. You know, the writer of Hebrews says this so succinctly. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. It's amazing to what he says, but I'm going to read a little bit and stop and talk about it and then read a little bit. It says, this is Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and, off and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews said this in a nutshell. Priests go in every day, daily. They go in, sometimes with the same type of 
offering. Maybe it's the lamb twice in a row, or maybe it's a goat, or maybe it's some corn, or whatever it is he's sacrificing. Every priest stands daily, ministry and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifice, but which can never take away sin. If it ever took away sin once and for all, they wouldn't keep have to do it, right? They had to do it periodically. There was a year of atonement for like a one big sacrifice for a whole year. There was all sorts of things, but it repeated again next year. So it never took it away. From henceforth expect until... I, mean, I missed something. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. We'll read that again. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from whence expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. Y'all, the finishing work of the cross is finished. There's no undoing. There's nothing you're going to do. Going to have to make God say, well, oops, I didn't get that one. Let me go back and finish that sin. It is complete. The finished work of the cross is complete. For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Ooh, I love that verse. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to this. For after He had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now their remission of these is there is no more offering for sin. There is nothing that has to be done to have sin atoned for. It is finished. The debt has been paid. And Jesus became the perfect sacrifice, the once total and forever sacrifice. The, the writer of Acts says this, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is Jesus. John also told us in chapter 3, we find this, But he that believeth not on him, I said that wrong. But he believeth on him, believe on Jesus, is not condemned. But, this is one of the bad ones, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Do you actually believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son? Jesus is God's one and only plan for salvation. There's no, again, plan B. Brings me to my last point. God cannot save you apart if you choose to refuse to believe. God cannot save those who refuse to believe. To believe. Romans 10 says this, really good stuff. Romans 10 starting with verse 9. Listen closely to this. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised Him from the dead, 
thou shalt be saved. Period. For, the, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth he confession is made unto salvation. That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. Some of the best. You need to paste that on your wall. You need to wonder, are you saved? You need to read that and ask, is that true? The Bible says that we must confess Jesus as Lord and we must believe that God raised Him from the dead. Think about it. If you do this, a promise is made, Romans 9, you will be saved. What is that promise? So if you ever really question whether or not you were saved, you, this is the litmus test. You ask these questions. Do you really believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead? That's the question. Do you really confess that Jesus is your Lord? If the answer to both of these questions are yes, then you're saved. No matter what the world says to you. No matter what you just did, by the way. But no matter what the world, what the world has called you. You've done your part, what He required. You said that you believed in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and you believe and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, all you've got to do is just rely on Jesus. Jesus said, because of that, you will be saved. Period. That's good news. That's good news. God doesn't lie. So He said, if I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that God raised Him from the dead, and if Jesus is my Lord and Savior, whom I trust, whom I look to, whom I pray to every day, if I do those two things, the Bible says plain, you are saved. You are saved. You believe. You confess. It's up to God to save you. Now that road to salvation, I'm going to tell you something, it could be kind of rough. That road, you know, you get justified by that, by believing and confessing. You get justified before a holy God. Then as you live, there's that thing called sanctification, that you're sanctified, and then once we go home to glory or He comes to get us, we're glorified or glorification. So that little road of sanctification is where all of us that are saved are walking. We're in that road now. And that road, can I get a witness? It's kind of bumpy. Can I get a witness? It's bumpy. We have some ups and we have some downs, don't we? But that's okay. God's working everything out for His good. But you go back to it. Do I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the grave? Does Jesus, is He Lord of my life? If I believe that and I confess that, the Bible says God will save you. You will be saved. The Bible actually speaks of being saved in a, in a present tense and in a, in a often, I don't know, I don't know my verbs that well. But it talks about it in the here and now. You are being saved. And then you'll ultimately be saved. That's what the Bible says when it says being, what talks about it being saved. It uses it kind of as a plural and as a singular. I'm being saved now. Things I do. Things I shouldn't do that I, that I do. Things <coughs> that I have that I shouldn't do. Those things are working out in my life through the Spirit and they're becoming less and less. But as I walk in that, I'm still being saved. But ultimately, because of justification, I am saved. That's why the thief of the cross got to buy. Now, you understand that. The thief, of the, the thief on the cross got to buy. He said, Father, 
He said, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus said these beautiful words to him. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He got saved. That thief on the cross, no matter, no, no telling what he actually did, probably pretty bad because the Bible says nothing about him getting there. He just got there because of the law. So he was probably a pretty bad character. But he saw Jesus, however it was, however the work of the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's a mystery how some people get saved. It's a mystery how the thief on the cross did. But by God, I thank God that he did. But you know, he didn't have to come down and get, and get baptized and, and live a life. and do, do, He didn't have to do any of that. He died basically just like Jesus did. But when he woke up, his eyes were in heaven. Thief on the cross. Think about it. But our salvation depends on what we do with Jesus. That's the basis of the Christian faith. What do we do with Jesus? We must believe in Him, in Jesus. John tells us that Jesus said this to the people. He was talking to the Pharisees again. He said, search the Scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Talking about the Pharisees. But they are that which testify to me. When you read the Bible, a lot of people like to read the Bible with a critical eye. They like to look at it and say, you know, I'm going to see what this thing says that, that I'm not doing that I can argue with. That's not the right way to look at the Bible, is it? You look at the Bible, it's God's holy word. You see Jesus all through it. If you're unwilling to come to Christ, the Bible's plain. You will die. You can be in church every day, doesn't matter. But if you, you refuse to come to Jesus and make Him Lord of your life, the Bible is plain. You didn't keep your end of the bargain. His bargain don't stick. You're going to go to hell. You're going to die. This is a very good illustration, and I'm through. This is um, talking about uh, past president Andrew Jackson that we used to have a long time ago. But during the presidency of Andrew Jackson... A man by the name of George Wilson, he was a postal clerk. He robbed a federal payroll from a train, and in the process, he killed a guard. He was caught, convicted. The court convicted him and sentenced him to hang. He was fixing to die. But because of the public sentiment against capital punishment, the movement began during that time... To, to, to secure what we call the presidential pardon. Does everybody know what a presidential pardon is? We're all, we're, okay. It sort of started right around here. This is early on in, in the United States. But, but eventually, the president, Andrew Jackson, intervened. He gave him a presidential pardon. George Wilson refused. Since this had never happened before, I'm here to tell you, if, my, if, if I'm, in, I'm about ready to hang from a, a rope and somebody gives me an out, I'm going, right? I'm out. But, but this uh, George didn't. He got a presidential pardon and he refused it. The, the article goes on to say, since that had never happened before, the Supreme Court was asked to rule on this, on whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. Think about it. Chief Justice John Marshall handed down this decision, and this is beautiful. Listen to this. A pardon is a parchment 
whose only value must be determined by the receiver of that pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. You think real hard about that's salvation right there. You think real hard about that. That's a beautiful illustration. Jesus is calling out to everyone. All they do is refuse the pardon. And the same thing happens. They die. Let me read what he said again. It's beautiful. It's old, kind of old English, but it's made. He said, a parchment. He said, a pardon is a parchment, in other words, a parchment of paper, whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. In other words, it ain't anything worth anything unless you accept it. That's salvation. Because salvation is given full and free to all those who believe. All those who believe. So, so it's the same thing. I love this illustration. George Wilson refused to accept the pardon. There are many people that are going to bust hell wide open because they refuse to believe in Jesus. They refuse to make Him Lord of their life. And John Marshall, part of the Chief Justice, said, George Wilson must die. So George Wilson was punished for his crime and he was hanged. Pardon declared the Supreme Court must not only be granted, but it must be accepted. Think about it. You and I, pardon, forgiveness, salvation, has been offered to you. What will you do with it? Will you accept it? Or will you deny it? Dear God, as we're here, Lord, we see that. What an amazing gift, giving full and free your gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, let us be people that believe the book. Let us be people that live the book. Let us be people that know the book. Lord, that they can see you in the way we walk, Lord, in the way we talk, in the, way we, in the things we do. Lord, that we can be found faithful. Lord, thank you for salvation given full and free. Lord, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that knows you not as personal Savior, Lord, let today be that day. Lord, open their heart. Lord, invade their life that they can see the truth that is only in your word. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.